will find Psalm 27 and Philippians 4. So you want 557 and 1180, but we'll start with the first one. Psalm 27 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear, though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Let's read Philippians 4. Verses 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. 
This is God's word. Sarah, thank you, and uh, morning, everyone. Uh, lovely to be able to gather together. If we're not met, my name's Matt Fuller, I'm the vicar here. And uh, if you are visiting, we're doing a slightly unusual little run for us, so um, three in a row in uh, this month of January. So rather than our normal habit of uh, progressing through books of the Bible and uh, taking them block by block, we're thinking topically a little bit. Um, we've given this, <laughs> maybe not my best title ever, How to Grown Well is, uh, is what we're calling these little three, I mean, in a sort of Romans 8 sense. Uh, this, it, this world goes wrong at times. So how do you respond wisely, rightly? How do you groan well? Because uh, groaning, I think, is somewhat inevitable. You can do it well, you can do it badly. So uh, last week we made a start in Psalms 42 and 43, hoping God went downcast. Uh, this morning we're thinking a bit about anxiety. And, uh, so we're mostly in Psalm 27, so do turn back there. I'll make brief reference to Philippians 4. But Psalm 27 is really where we are this morning. Let me pray. And then we'll look at this together. Almighty God, we thank you that you're a loving Father. You give us all that we need. You give us the resources we need to cope with the adversities of this life. And while not straightforward, here in Psalm 27 is a rich source of strength that can greatly comfort us, shape us. Uh, move us more into people who respond well to the stresses of this world. Help us understand it rightly. Not to expect too much too quickly. Not to expect too little. Father, help us to expect it or to read it rightly, we pray and respond with faith in you. Amen. Well, verse 1. Uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? got no fears. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Got no problems. Or verse 3, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Now my question is, can you imagine ever honestly saying that? Honestly. Oh, it doesn't matter what's coming at me. You can have an army besieging me. I'm not going to fear anything. Can you ever imagine saying that? Is it even realistic to say that? Uh, I mean, there are times when we're pretty anxiety-free, maybe on holiday, maybe like a week into a two-week holiday, and, um, and the, the, the sun has done a little bit of work on us, and, you know, we're just a little... Um, but even then, niggling in the back of your head is, oh, this thing going on at work, and oh, are the kids, is this going to work out for them? And oh, a BA going to go on strike? Oh. Um, they're just these little, little niggles tweaking away. To be completely anxiety-free, can you imagine that? Oh, yes, you say, yeah, no, yeah, yes, it's Psalm 27, that's me. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't fear anything. I don't fear anyone I love ever getting sick. I have no anxieties about my children. I never worry about what they're going to do next or their future. Never a problem. No worries. No, none of that. Um, you're a liar. <laughs> Can you think there's anyone in the, in the world that's quite like that? You think of the, the sort of super rich? I was reading last weekend, he made me nothing to do, but Paul Pogba, he's a footballer, he was only £300,000 a week. That's more than me. And, um, uh, 
but it, just, it was interesting. It was an interview with him, just got no friends, can't trust anyone, always anxious he's going to get robbed. You think money doesn't insulate you? You still worry about all sorts of things. And yet David can say, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. It will not. And yet, the intriguing thing about Psalm 27 is, in the first six verses, you've got this extraordinary declaration of confidence. I'll not fear, I'll not be afraid. God is with me, God has got me. And then verses 7 to 12, he says, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, don't let me go, Lord. Uh, I'm a bit anxious. Uh, can we say that? Uh, but he's certainly pleading with the Lord in verses 7 to 12. Don't hide your face from me, verse 9. Don't turn me away. Don't forsake me. Don't reject me. Because I'm a bit nervous you might. So you go from this extraordinary confidence to oh, having a bit of a, a little wobble here, and uh, then confidence again. Now, I think we're meant to find it encouraging because that's real life. Yeah, I can, yeah, I know God's got me. Has he? Uh, really? Uh, no, I think he probably has. No, no, he has, he has, he has. That sort of ebb and, and flow, I don't think that's abnormal. I don't think the Bible expects us to have an anxiety-free life. The issue is how do you respond to the stresses of life? How will you cope? How will you address anxiety? As I say, in three weeks, we're thinking topically about how to groan well. Uh, and this is how to groan well when anxious and um, Part of the reason I wanted to do this little run of three, um, well, if you notice, I never want to do topical things. Uh, I think they're always much harder work and then just about think they're worth doing. But um, uh, the reason I thought about doing this run of three is just because culturally, what a presenting issue it is in terms of, for a loose, broad category, mental health. So I think um, it is particularly acute in a younger generation the people who've done, who continue to do the most, uh, it seems to be, thorough uh, research uh, on this, uh, two American academics, not together, well, sort of, Gene Twenge, some would have read uh, iGen and, uh, and um, Generations is her most recent book, and uh, Jonathan Haidt, um, neither of them were Christians, H-A-I-D-T, not, not I hate you, um, uh, but both non-Christian academics, uh, but they have this big open access research base and everyone chips in, so it's a broad coalition. And um, I say, it's a real problem. So this is uh, one little graph from um, a Hate's book, uh, which is just about to be published, Anxious Generation. He says, okay, so here's, oh, they're working primarily in the US, but the, 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 the research is, translates pretty well across the whole of the Western world. Um, so here's the percentage of U.S. undergraduates diagnosed with a mental illness. And you can compare, for simplicity's sake, 2010 with 2020. Depression up 106%. Anxiety up 134% in a decade. And hate's really clear. Please don't say, oh, this is good because... Um, uh, we're talking about these things and there's less, less stigma attached to these things now because, he says, levels of self-harm have gone up at the same rate and suicidality has gone up at the same rate. So this is not a good thing, it's a disaster. And, of course, why, why is it? It's complicated. Um, 
although it is a soundbitey way, his, his simple summary in, um, in the book Anxious Generation is, um, parents have overprotected children in the real world and underprotected them in the virtual world. That's his summary of why it is. So no going outside to play in the street because it's a dangerous place. We've overprotected in the real world. Um, although maybe it's not as acute in a city because you don't drive everywhere. Kids certainly from about 11 plus get buses and tubes and all sorts of things. So maybe less acute in a city, I don't know. Um, but we've underprotected in, in the virtual world. So they would be joining the campaign saying no smartphones for under 16s. Um, sorry, everyone. Sorry. Sorry if you're under 16. Um, uh, but, you know, put a ban on them. It's complicated. But how do we think about such things as Christians? Because that is what people call an epidemic of anxiety. Well, we thought last time, broadly in, these, in this arena, you can think of three categories, very, very broadly. This is, this is real uh, finger-in-the-air stuff. You can have, uh, we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, things go wrong. You, a generation grows up in a, a pandemic when they can't get out of the house. That'll have an impact. In a fallen world, people uh, do things to you. They abuse you. They, they bend you out of shape in a fallen world. You're on the receiving end of that. So there's a limit to what you can do. We have a fallen bodily chemistry, and some people are just more prone to depression or just more prone to anxiety than others. That's a reality. And then we're sinful, fallen human beings. And how we act and respond, we have agency there. Even in the, the middle category, the sort of fallen bodily chemistry, there's stuff you can do. You can affect your diet. You can do a lot more exercise. You can have an impact upon what you take into your head, how much time you spend on phones and things such as that. But really, the Bible primarily is going to address the final category. How do we respond in such scenarios? And we mustn't be simplistic. And we must hold those three very broad categories together. I'm sure I've been on the receiving end, possibly on the delivering end, of a, a fairly dismissive, you know, well, Philippians 4, 6 says, don't be anxious about anything, so there you go. Just don't, and then you won't be. How's that gone for you in life? Anyone? Anyone said you don't be anxious? Oh, okay. Now you've told me that, it's fine. Um, oh, silly me. Um, no, it doesn't really work like that, does it? Uh, of course, there's a lot more to that passage. But even then, it's a bit more nuanced biblically. So in the New Testament, the word anxiety and concern, um, anyway, you could look at now, um, but it's how you translate it, you've got a choice. So let me give you some other examples of the, that same word. Don't be anxious about anything. Philippians 4, 6, we may have them. So earlier in the letter to Philippians, Paul can say, I have no one else like Timothy who will show genuine anxiety for your welfare. That's good. It's really good that Timothy's so anxious. Huh. Uh, really? Or um, 1 Corinthians 12. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so there should be division in the body, but that its parts should have equal anxiety for each other. Oh. It's good in a church family when we're anxious for one another. Hmm. Huh. Or Paul can say himself, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I don't feel weak? Who's led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? 
I'm really anxious about you because I love you. Now we know that. Why do many parents get anxious about their kids? Because they love them. There's something very normal and natural about that. What do you do? What do you then do with the anxiety? It's got to be the question. I take it in the flow there. Philippians 4, don't be overwhelmed by anxiety. You go to the Lord in prayer. Or similarly, 1 Peter 5 verse 7, cast your anxiety on him. You will have anxieties in this world. You will. You may be captain chilled out, but something gets you anxious, even at a very low level. Or you may be Monsieur Stress Cadet, whatever, and, um, you know, and have it on a more frequent basis. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It doesn't solve everything quickly, but you can move that direction. You can become someone who more consistently casts your anxiety. Over time, become less anxious. There's no quick fixes. It's not binary. Cast your cares, move your box from one place to another. Cast your cares upon the, well, I've done that. No, you keep doing it and you become less anxious over years and decades. Or Psalm 27, and that's where we are for the rest of our morning. Psalm 27. Now, um, who knows what's going on in David's life? Uh, I think it's very helpfully no great details. You know, quite often in the Psalms, they'll tell you when he's on the run from, when he's hiding in this place. We don't know uh, the details in Psalm 27. But clearly, fear is a very real possibility for him. That's why he has to resolve he won't. Even the declaration of uh, Psalm 27 verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Implicit in that is, uh, I'm really tempted to fear. (laughs) I have to remember who God is uh, to not fear at this point. The unusual thing about Psalm 27 is lots of Psalms have this sort of theme to them, but they go a bit like this. Lord, I've got real problems and I'm really anxious can you help me? Phew, I trust that you will. Okay, that's loads of Psalms have that sort of uh, cadence. The odd thing about Psalm 27 is it goes the other way around. Lord, I'm really confident in you, but I'm sort of not. Uh, and I'm sort of anxious. That's a sort of, it's, it's very unusual in that regard, Psalm 27. Which is why I want to structure it to, to look at that ebb and flow. So uh, slightly long, but hopefully we're, these points make sense. Verses, so we'll go through it like this. I'm confident for the Lord is my strength, verses 1 to 6. I'm pleading that the Lord will not forsake me, 7 to 12. I'm confident that the Lord will save me, 13 and 14. But that ebb and flow, it matters. Only then does David emerge saying... No, I I can say again, my heart will not fear. Let's work through it. First then, verses one to six, I'm confident for the Lord is my strength. Uh, Verse one, the Lord is three things. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Light, the Lord is light, these vivid pictures, of course, light drives out darkness. 
Maybe he's thinking of uh, uh, the Exodus generation. You've got this vast pillar of fire which does what? It uh, leads, it guides the Israelites through the wilderness. It protects them at night. It surrounds them and keeps them safe. It uh, offers illumination. God does those things. Being realistic, when do we get most stressed? Well, there's stuff going on and then we're lying in bed and we may have fallen asleep for half an hour, but we wake again and it's three in the morning and, and then that's when we catastrophize, isn't it? Who does their best when they're stressed? Do you do your best thinking at three in the morning? You, you know, it's just, you just, you just take a sleeping towel or something, just, you know, just do anything, watch telly. You're never going to think in a straight line at 3 a.m. in the morning, but you're just anxious, anxious, anxious. But the light comes. The light does come. That's David's picture. The, I, I, know, I know that God is light. He's like sunshine and the Aegean in Greece in a summer holiday. Well, what's the weather like tomorrow? Well, it's sunny. What's the weather like tomorrow? It's sunny. Um, because you know, it's always going to come. It's always going to come. The Lord is light. He's salvation from enemies, fears, deaths. Often the two get connected in Scripture, particularly in the book of Isaiah, the light and, and salvation. In the Old Testament, it's physical, physical enemies. This side of the work of Jesus, we're thinking primarily the Lord will save us out of a world of hostile estrangement from God. Our enemies are death. Our enemies are hell. He'll save us. He's a stronghold. It's a great picture, is it? A stronghold. You think of impregnable fortress. I visited uh, Edinburgh Castle recently. There it is, sat on its extinct volcano. Uh, but it's pretty impressive. You come, oh, you know, you're not going to climb that wall apart from then you do realize it's actually the most besieged castle in Europe ever. Uh, 34 times it's actually been conquered. But anyway, not to worry about that. Um, you know, uh, there it is. Uh, Masada. Have you ever been, ever been to Masada? I do we've got that one. Again, very impressive. How are you going to conquer that right at the top of, um, right at the top of the mountain? Apart from the Romans did actually, but uh, they were very good at war. Um, but God is a, an unassailable, impregnable fortress. No one defeats him. No one sneaks up on him. No one beats him in an arm wrestle. He's impregnable. And so David can say, verses two and three, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's them. It's my enemies and foes who'll stumble and fall. And though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear because though war break out against me, even then I'll be confident because I've got you. Well, you to the slight, to the slight irritation of the um, trendier members of my household uh, this week, uh, after doing a bit of work on uh, Psalm 27, I found myself humming um, an Ellie Goulding song, and apparently she's um, middle of the road uselessness. Uh, you know, you may like her, but um, uh, she's sort of boring, apparently, uh, not trendy. But anyway, she's got this. Song. It's, it's not about God; it's about her best mate. But she sings, "When I'm with you, I'm standing with an army." I'm standing with an army and no one's going to get me. And uh, I've been humming that because that's the, I mean, I should probably be singing a Luther song, you know, a mighty fortress is our God, to be much healthier. Um, um, but um, that's the principle, that's it. God, you're with me, I'm with you. 
I'm fine, is what he's saying. Or if we drop down to verse five, it's a lovely picture, this one, verse five. For in the day of trouble, he'll keep me safe in his dwelling, literally lair, the lair of a lion. Again, the picture is all these, these a few yapping dogs that are gonna uh, attack David, uh, wild dogs. And he runs into a cave and the lion comes out to protect the cave and just roars at the dogs like, uh, and they run away. That's David's picture in his mind. I'm with you. You've got me. My heart will not fear. In the middle of it, verse four, I think, does stand out. It doesn't have the imagery of um, protection, of fortress, of high places, of sheltering. It's interesting, verse four. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he'll keep me safe in his dwelling. David's first prayer when surrounded by his enemies is not, destroy them, Lord, get rid of them, Lord. It's what I need is I need to look at you. That's what I need first of all. One thing I need, I assume probably Jesus was thinking of Psalm 27 when he said to Martha in Luke 10, Martha, only one thing is needed to sit at my feet and listen to me. David asks three parallel things. I ask from the Lord to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. To dwell, I don't, I don't literally think he's saying, can I move into the temple can I, or, the, or the tabernacle? Can I move in? Uh, because he wasn't allowed. He wasn't a priest. No, David is the answer. You're not allowed to come in. Um, but to be near where God is, to be in the presence of God, I guess is what, really what he's asking. Well, this side of the work of Jesus Christ, Christians know that we're always in the presence of God. He dwells in us by his spirit. We live in him. But the other two, well, they're a bit more um, proactive on our part. So certainly to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. I think, what does it mean? What is, what is David asking? I want to look at the beauty of the invisible God. And you think, well, how do you, how do, you do that, David? Well, he wants to do it in the house of God. He wants to do it in the tabernacle. So I wonder, I mean, just a couple of thoughts. That is the place where God lived with his people representatively. David says, I, I want to look at your beauty and part of your beauty is you want to live with your people? That's amazing. You're like this omniscient, omnipotent, holy God and you want to live with us? That's amazing. You're, you're the God of fire and terror on, at Mount Sinai but you want to live with us? That's amazing. You're a God who can split the Red Sea and, and, and drown thousands of, of your enemies. You want to live with us. You want to live with me. That's amazing. I think it's part of it, the house of God. And the tabernacle, the house of God, is also where sacrifices are offered for sin. Animals offered. They're, they make atonement for the sins, for the selfishness, for the flaws of the people. 
So it must mean at least that. I want to look at your beauty, Lord. I want to look at the fact that you care so much for us. You want to live with your people. I want to look at the fact that you forgive us our sins through a sacrifice. And of course, we look forward to that work done by Jesus. It must mean at least that. I don't know, plenty more things I'm sure it means. But I'm going to gaze on those things. Consider you care, you want to live with us. Consider you've made atonement for all we've done wrong for our sin. I'm going to dwell on those things. I want to look at those things. And third, he says, says, um, still verse four, and to seek him in his temple. It's a different word from the beginning of the verse, verse four, the one thing that I seek. The end here has much more of a sense of inquiry. I want you to guide me, Lord. I want you to teach me your way, is what he says in verse 11. I think it's a synonymous phrase. I want you to show me now how to live. I, I, I want to read the scriptures and let them form me, he's saying. So in verses 1 to 6, David can say, I'm confident, for the Lord is my strength. But to maintain that confidence, one thing I do need, I, I need to look at you. I need to gaze at you. I need to seek you if I'm going to be confident. There's the confidence. Then verses 7 to 12, second thing, we get the the prayer, the pleading. So he can say verses uh, 7 to 12, I'm pleading that the Lord will not forsake me. So verse 7, three prayers. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Verse 8, the little seek his face is plural. So I think David is quoting. God has said, seek my face. And David says, I will, verse 8, seek your, fa- seek your face. Verse 9, these three do not. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Not that I think that mum and dad have given up on David, but even if they did, I know you never would. Um, Like some of them, both my parents are dead uh, and they were good parents. Uh, And there's a sense in which Your parents are so cockeyed and one-sided on your side, it's wonderful. Particularly when you've left home for a long time and they've forgotten how annoying you are. (laughs) They're just on your side. Sometimes even more than your spouse, who does have to live with you and still remembers how annoying you are. um, They're absolutely on your side, good parents, in a really wonderful, we don't care, we just love you sort of way. And David's saying, beyond that, beyond that, I know you'll never give up on me. So teach me. Even um, verse 11, teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Because when they're having a go at me, I'm likely to misbehave, I guess. And verse 12, the last, do not. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. Now here's the question that I wasted, not wasted, spent time on this week just really wrestling with Why do verses 7 and 12 come after verses 1 to 6? I'm really confident. Please don't let me go. Now, I think there's just a very human response that we ebb and flow. I think also in Psalm 27, if you can put it into a really naff equation, 
anxiety plus verses 1 to 6, dwelling upon truths about the Lord and who he is and what he's done equals prayer. Okay? So he's really anxious. He remembers who God is and then he prays, which is pretty much the same as Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but but with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your requests to the Lord. And whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is good, think about these things. Think about God. You're, of course you're going to be anxious in this world at times. Think about him. Dwell upon him. Know who he is and who he is for you. And then you can pray. It doesn't remove all anxiety, but you're coping seems to me what's happening here. And so he emerges, verses 13 and 14, he can say, I'm confident that the Lord will save me. I'm confident that the Lord will save me. James Hannington was the the first bishop uh, in East Africa, there's one or two at church here, who went to Bishop Hannington Church in uh, Hove and and grew up there. He was a Christian martyr, he was there, a pioneering missionary, particularly uh, into um, uh, Kenya and Uganda uh, um, uh, centuries ago. At some point he got caught up in a bit of a conflict between a local tribe and German um, uh, colonial powers and um, even though they they knew he was different, anyway, the, the, the tribe captured him, he was in prison for eight days, and he was told that, that he was going to be killed. And the day before he died, he wrote in his journal, I'm quite broken down and brought low now. Greatly comforted by Psalm 27. Not because he thought he was going to survive, actually, because he knew he'd die, or he was expecting that, but because he knew it was part of God's plan I will not fear, not because disaster can't come, because it does. I will not fear because disaster is never outside of God's plan. And the Christian knows that they will see the goodness of God in the new creation. They'll see him. They'll see his face. And that is part of the key resources we need to cope with life in a messy, fallen world. What would Psalm 27 encourage us to do in anxiety? To dwell in his presence. We do that. You're a Christian. You live in the presence of God. He lives in you. To gaze on his beauty. To seek his character. To seek his will in the scriptures. I can just say as we finish, you do need to hold on to two lenses when we're thinking about anxiety, at least. We are both sufferers and sinners So anxiety is outside of your control and you can affect it, both. We're sufferers in a fallen world. Things happen that are deeply stressful. People uh, uh, assail you like they do David and it's enormously stressful. You can't control that and you can't always control all your responses to it, but you can affect them deeply, particularly over time. And you have to hold both. If you just think purely in terms of suffering, which is true, 
that some of us are more prone, in this case, to anxiety than others. Some of us have, that's the way our body chemistry has fallen. Some have experienced trauma, which affects us deeply. We're bent out of shape in a fallen world. That is true, we're sufferers. But if you only think in those terms, you've got no hope. It can lead to passivity. Well, I'm just a sufferer. Life has been tough to me. There's nothing I can do. So it's no good purely to think in those terms. I recognize also I'm a sinner. How am I going to respond? Now, if you only think in terms of sinfulness, then, then you'll be crushed <laughs> because you just think, well, I am anxious and that's because I'm sinful and, that's a, and I'm such a wretched person. You're, you're, you're locked in all sorts of patterns of guilt. Both. You're both a sufferer in this world and a sinner. But the thing with that is you can take responsibility. Don't ignore the very practical things. Diet, exercise, they'll affect you massively. Counseling may help for past trauma. Your GP may well be able to help with some things. And you talk to yourself. You work through Psalm 27 and say, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. And again, you don't move from, I'm stressed, I've read this psalm, I'm not stressed. You don't do that. But over time, trust deepens. In moments, you, you do need to look deeply at who God is and gaze upon his beauty, and that can help. But the change is one that takes time. You don't move from being an anxious person to not anxious like that. But we are both sufferers in this world and sinners. You cannot control anxiety, but you can deeply affect it. And over time, you can say with David, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, these are emotive things and you know that in a room such as this, we've been very different places and some do, uh, are wired in such a way to, to, to naturally, instinctively breeze through life and um, uh, be far less concerned or burdened with anxiety. Some are uh, in a fallen bodily chemistry, experience this much more frequently. But Lord, all of us have responsibility. All of us have the hope of progress and the hope of change because you are at work in the Christian believer. So Father, help us in that. Help us to dwell upon who you are, to gaze upon your beauty, the beauty of your character, the beauty of your work, the certainty of your keeping us safe in your dwelling. So, Father, that increasingly our hearts do not fear in an anxious world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.